Hi guys and welcome back to Growing Up Ghetto, the podcast with me, Johanna Thomas. We're going to be discussing today um, the backstory of me being in care, how I kind of came to be there and it's going to cover up until about maybe 2000, 2001 when I came back to Bristol. Um, I do need to give a pre-warning. This may be a triggering conversation for some. Um, Just be aware of that. There also may be some explicit language going on in this conversation. Um, I do urge people to seek support where is needed, whether that be from friends, family, or speaking to professionals. Make sure that you do that. If you want to get at me for signposting, that's not a problem. And if you want to get at me to discuss more, that's not a problem. Have a good day, guys. Hi guys, so let's get into the conversation. Today we're going to be talking about me and care and how I feel like that maybe shaped my view of things before I got to kind of being in St. Paul's on a permanent basis growing up ghetto. So as I've said previously, um, I have been known... My family was known to care, social services, caring, looking after, support teams. Um, That was definitely known. I think my mum was known to these kind of teams before I and my siblings were born. Um, And I think the move to Bristol generally was done because of I'm not sure if it was safety reasons. It has something along those lines to do with my mum and safety reasons and being in Bristol. I was born in 88. My mum moved to Bristol, as I said previously, around the ages of two, three, four for me. I was a baby at the time. Um, I don't even think my brother was walking at the time and we're something like only like a year and six months apart. So that should let you know. But once we had got to Bristol, I guess it became quite apparent to social services that my mum wasn't going to be able to provide the necessary care that is required. Let me rephrase that. I don't know how to kind of rephrase that, actually, to be honest with you guys, because it was a... It was a bit of a push pull and tug situation so because my mother parent had her thing or whatever else going on at the time I guess she wanted freedom so me and my brother would go on what they would call respite weekends which is essentially where you're children go and live somewhere else for the weekend to give the parent space break I don't know time to relax to recuperate to rethink to discuss about what it is or where it is that they want to go next so that would happen for me and my brother Um, I think I want to say that started at around the ages of three and possibly happened I want to say every weekend until I got to about maybe the age of five or six. It wasn't that long that that was happening. But I was living two lives essentially very early on in my childhood. I would go to these respites. I would go to places like Western Supermare. I would be in places like Bath. I would be in places like Chippenham. I would be there with my brother. A lot of the time, we would be on the beach, we would be riding horses, we would be reading books. And then, during the week, we would be back with my mum, who had other priorities. Um, And it meant that there was a lack of the basics, i.e. food, i.e. love, i.e. drink. Just 
getting that companionship that a child needs from an adult that they look to. And also, I want to say a lack of nurturing as well. Um, there were a couple of situations that I remember and that I'm aware of that happened that possibly pushed us into care a lot faster. I think there was occasions where me and my brother was outside and people would see us looking for food. Um, there were reports of that to social services. There were reports of parties in the house and um, us not being cared for properly, i.e. clothing, bathing and things like that. I remember on one occasion where I had got up and I knew my brother was meant to be at nursery. My mum was asleep, I think. And I got him dressed. I think I may have been about six at the time. I got him dressed as much as I could. And I walked my brother down to St Paul's Day Nursery. Um... And I think that they returned, they, they phoned social services, yeah. And when they got me back to the house, my mum wasn't aware that we was gone. So I guess, in a way, I don't know, you could kind of say that was my fault. But then you can tell that from then back as young as six that I knew that what I was meant to be doing or I knew how things were meant to be and I decided that I was going to try and do that. Looking back, probably wasn't the best idea. I want to say maybe around, um, maybe a year after that or maybe a year before that, I had previously left my mum's house, and at least time she was living on City Road, so the houses were upstairs, they were kind of big, I can't remember if she was upstairs or downstairs in the basement, I feel like she was upstairs, and I feel like the number was 111 City Road. Um, and I remember leaving the house one morning at the dead of night, I think it must have been about 5, 6 o'clock in the morning, and I got on a bus and I told the bus driver to take me to my dad in London. Now, um, he had the, the common sense to take me to a police station. But for me, that also highlights the fact that I was trying to get out as early as six. As early as six, I was trying, I was trying to get out. And I don't know where, I, I was trying to get back to my dad, trying to get back to London, that much I knew. I was trying to get out. I think these times I was having maybe sporadic visits from my dad. And we will go on to discuss him. Um... But he was coming and I was getting visits. So those are, that's two of the situations. There was also another situation where my mum lived on City Road. I'm sure she lived on City Road. And these times, St Paul's had a place called Enterprise Taxis, I think. That was round the corner. And if you know St Paul's well, you would know that back in the day, we had the Ashley Housing Office on the corner of the bottom of Grosvenor Road. And then... A couple tours down from that, we had Enterprise Taxis. So, um, one day I left the house and I went to Enterprise Taxis and I think, I, may, I think I may have been soaking wet. These times I was young, I, I, no more than six. And I told them basically, I think I told them to take me to school. And once again, somebody had the sense to take me back to my mum's house. To be quite honest with you, I feel like she had a lot of chances when we were younger. 
to change the projection of things. Um, so that happened. So by those things happening, that tells me that even as young as six, I knew that the situation that I was in wasn't a good situation and possibly wasn't the best place for me to be. Yeah? Um, they say that it takes a while for a child to know right and wrong. I don't particularly think it does, to be honest with you. I think that everybody kind of has a gut instinct and that gut instinct doesn't, it's not determined in time when that will kick in or when you will start to know the things that you are doing is wrong because you kind of know when you're doing things wrong. Your gut instinct will tell you, they will let you know. So the fact that I kept trying to get out of this situation with my mum um, tells me that I wasn't necessarily happy back then. So I continued to have um, respite weekend visits until I think my mum got pregnant with my sister and then I remember us being at the house with my sister's dad not her real dad but her dad I'll explain that later it's a whole lot of kerfuffle not a real dad, but a dad, um, the person who we called dad. Um, I remember walking up to St. Michael's Hospital. My mum lived on City Road. And I, me and my brother, I think I was, my sister was born in 94. I was born in 88, 89, 90, 91, 92, 93, 94, I was six. So that means then that those things that happened with me leaving the house and going out and trying to get to school and things like that would have happened before I was six. So probably around the ages of four or five. My sister was born in 94 um, at St. Michael's Hospital. And I remember us walking from her house on City Road up to the hospital because that was the only way to get there. I don't think there was a bus that went to the hospital then. I don't even think even if there was a bus that went to the hospital then that we would have been able to take it money-wise, living-wise and things like that. So I remember going to the hospital. I remember seeing my sister. But I don't ever remember going back home from that hospital. Something tells me that we was already in care then. But something tells me that we was taken from the hospital. And I remember a bit of a kerfuffle and an argument happening and my mum making a load of noise. But I think that may have been when they got the partial care order. Which essentially put me and my brother in care on a permanent basis. So, um, one of the first places that I remember us going to, I think, was with a family called Titus Glovers. Mm -hmm. They lived in Hallfield on the corner of, um, on Muller Road, on one of the side streets that's on the corner. Um... I went to Mill Pond School. And, you know, so when you're a child that comes from kind of like a disadvantaged background to the point where me and my brother was like, okay, so there was never food in the house. There was never, there was never any food in our house. There was never any love in our house. There was never any care in our house. And we never got that from our mother it may have been portrayed to other people that that's what she gave us but unfortunately 
I feel like what she felt was the correct love for her kids wasn't. And she didn't feel like we were giving her, I guess, what she needed. So, when you're a child that comes from a home where there has been drama and and violence and a lack of everything when you go into a home and there is all of that you kind of don't really know how to handle it or how to act and me and my brother were very um sometimes we could be very quiet sometimes we could be very loud sometimes it was us assessing a situation and adjusting to it sometimes it was people pleasing because as a child that is what you do when you want to get love you people please so that you can feel like you're doing things that people appreciate so that you do get um acknowledgement so that people are showing you signs of affection those were things that me and my brother i want to say hadn't necessarily had before or had had but hadn't had the required amount for a child is that the best way for me to say it i, I don't know how the best way for me to put that is is that but the basics of love care and attention that i feel that we needed or that you would give to young children me and my brother didn't get so that was that now when you go into a home where all of that is afforded to you and you have the ability to get all of that i don't think people understand how much that can overtake somebody who hasn't had it not necessarily in the sense of yeah oh my god it's here and i want to take it and i want to have it all but more i guess in, in the sense of for me is like i don't trust it i didn't trust it i didn't know where it was coming from i didn't know why it was coming it wasn't something that i was used to affection cuddles wanting to hug me wanting to support me and love on me i didn't understand that so i probably rejected a lot of it not understanding it because it wasn't something that i had been accustomed to being in care is was meant to be the respite for me and my brother to come out of the life that we had lived and start to be i want to say children because before that, we weren't children. We were babies surviving in a situation. And now they'd put us in a situation where we no longer had to, I guess, find clothes, feed ourselves, provide ourselves with love and care. And at the ages of four, five and six, that's not an easy thing to do. It's hard to feel like at that age why am i here and i think that lots of children that end up in situations um where they're not given the best due love care and attention nurturing um looking after end up with a feeling of why am i here because you look at your parent like why have you brought me here to do this to me when all i want to do is love you it doesn't make any sense to us and i don't know that i can guarantee you that there are probably a few children out there that feel the same because when you're abused in any form of sense by your parent whether that be physically whether that be mentally whether that be verbally um and all everything else that comes underneath that umbrella 
when you're abused by the person who is meant to love and nurture you, you kind of, it changes and skewish your whole look on life. It changes the way you think about things, the way you deal with things, the way you handle things coming forward. Because what it does, it then puts you in a situation of... It puts you in the mindful of why am I here, which then can also send you in a, into a, a spiralling depression. But then, as a child, that's a complex thing to have going on in your brain. Because you don't know where you should be or what it is that you should be or if you should even be does that make sense so i was living in care um and i was living with the titus glover and then my mum would make she would make a fuss i'm not quite sure so she wanted her children back. That was very, very, very clear. Um, and no matter what meeting that we went to, she would disrupt it. If we went to her for weekend visits, she would be due to take us back. She'd disrupt that. Um, which kind of didn't really make any sense to me because there were plenty of visits that we went to where my mum was meant to be at home. And she wasn't. We'd take taxis and she wasn't there. Um, we would be left outside the house for hours and hours and hours until she turned up or until social services or a taxi came to come and get us. Um, but routinely, my mum would make a scene or disrupt certain things. Now, looking back on that situation, I guess it's because she felt like we were her possessions. My mum felt like these were her kids. She wanted them back. She was going to have them back. And she didn't know how to communicate things that were going on in her brain. So... Being at the Titus Glovers, eventually they, I guess, eventually they got fed up. Um, it was a case of a taxi would drop us to our mum's house and drop us back. And then, I guess, one day, the shouting became too much. And I don't even know what it was for. I don't think, I just don't, I don't think she was happy with my hair. She had plaited my hair and it was taken out because it was a mess that needed redoing and she wasn't happy about the fact that they had done that. And she had come to the foster carer's house and she had made one hell of a scene outside. Screamed, shouted, chucked stuff. To the point where they was like, to come and get these kids. So... They came and got us. And it meant that we were moved, emergency, to a different foster carer. And I think that at that point we were moved to Bath. Because didn't, I guess in a certain situation, to a certain degree they didn't know how to handle my mother. <laughs> she was a storm in a teacup. And they didn't know how to handle her or what to do or what support to give her. And I guess it got to a stage where she was just untalkable to. But she didn't realise that. I don't know if she... Maybe she did. But the actions that she was doing were ruining our chances of stability. Because every time she would see a foster carer and create a scene, they would then decide that they no longer wanted us there. So 
we moved all over the place everywhere until i think i finally settled with a foster carer called rose um at about eight and then this was in eastern my mum I think my mum still lived in St. Paul's at this time. Part of the time she lived in Southmead, I think. And some of the time she lived in Hembury. Um, my mum also spent some time in Easton. I can't remember the name of that road. It's not Cranmore Crescent. I can't remember the name. But Cranmore Crescent was in Southmead. I will figure that out and get back to you guys. But we had moved in with Rose, which was going to be a permanent placement now um for a number of years but my mother would still create scenes i guess but i guess i guess rose was a bit resilient she had been a foster carer for many years um she kind of knew what to expect i don't know what made my mum kind of quiet down with her she did she did keep up the same old baloney but I guess it's the fact that we wasn't far um we went to Mill Pond which was basically across the road and we played in Eastern with the kids and and we started to assume some form of regular child lifestyle you know we was eating regular meals we was going to school school work was doing good i was in every bloody club available i did knitting club i did cookery club i did gymnastics i did sports i did everything that was available for me to do i did i was active i was achieving and i was doing well while still going to these weekend or respite visits with my mum so through the years nothing had really changed for my mum she still was living this kind of like and I don't even want to say transient because she had a lot, she had a house, but it was transient. She was never settled in one place for more than like two years. She couldn't settle with one guy. And she just couldn't stabilize. She just couldn't be stable. She didn't have a job she wasn't working consistently she had this venture as a dj and i'm not really quite sure where that came from or how she even learned or how she picked that up to both of you i don't know i don't know but she was still very very unsettled and i remember one day while being at roses we went for a um a visit this is a pre-arranged visit me my mum knew of the weekends that they were meant to be she knew when they were going to happen and what was going to happen um and she knew that she would should have been at home to collect us a taxi would generally pick us up from school um, and take us straight to our mum's house on a Friday. We would spend the weekend there and then we would get picked up or taken back on Sunday, ready to go to school Monday. So this Friday, I think my mum lived on Cranmore Crescent and we were picked up in a taxi and dropped outside our house. And I think we sat there from about four o'clock until... I want to say 6.30, 7 o'clock, before basically one of the neighbours came and got us in and um, phoned the police and social services and they sent a taxi to come and get us, which took me back to my foster carers that night. 
I think that night, essentially, although I can probably say I knew my mum couldn't parent before, that day I knew that my mum doesn't have the what it takes to be a mum. I understood that she may love me dearly, but you don't have the ability to be a parent and put your children before yourself. The reason why I come to this conclusion is because, like I said before, visits are arranged. They're pre-arranged, you know when they're going to happen, you know what time they're going to happen. So... For me, for you not to be there for these children that you claim that you love so much shows that you don't care. So for me, she didn't care. And I guess... I tell you what, on that day, I cried my heart out to my foster care. I really, really did because I felt really heartbroken. It's like it really, really, really clicked in my head that she cannot do this thing in it called parenting. I could and would never, ever, ever put my children through that. But there are certain situations, things happen, and I don't know. My mum claimed the next time that she was at work. Um, but for me, that wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough. It doesn't matter how much I look back. I'm never going to change my mind on that. That wasn't good enough. That's not a good enough response because you don't have your children with you all the time. You only have one of them with you out of three all the time and you're claiming that you love these kids and you want to be there for them and you want to do all the things that are required of them. Then they should be your first priority. But my mum was off doing other stuff. She was DJing at the time. She, I guess she was being a parent. She was living her life, innit? She, I think she was very happy with one child. Even though she'd given birth to these other two and she loved them, I don't think she understood that children are not accessories. They're actual living people that you need to feed, love, nurture and teach to be acceptable adults in society a lot of parents look on their children as accessories or a means to an end it's a way to get a flat it's a way to get more money it's a way to keep this guy it's a way to keep people interested in me children are not that people children are people they have feelings they understand and a hell of a lot more than what you think you do. So because I essentially learned that then, I realised that I was going to have to grow up because I was going to have to look after myself. I couldn't, if I couldn't trust my mum to look after me and to nurture me and to care for me. Who else was I meant to trust? At this point, my dad wasn't around on a regular basis. Um, social workers were changing. I had a social worker called Fiona Hodge. Um, guardian and items were changing, which was the person that was meant to be your support. Um, foster care stayed the same, but people around the meetings changed. Like, everything was a constant change. Nothing was really stable. And then the things that were stable, you kind of look at as a child in care. And, like, do I trust this? Whether that be because of me, whether that be because of situations that 
my parent had made but there was a lot that I guess I didn't trust which meant that the only person's judgment that I had to rely on was mine and that didn't happen late in life that happened very early probably hence the reason why I'm a very stubborn person now and I don't really want other people's opinions on my life <clears throat> because when going through the thick of shit or the hardest stuff it would have been me that I had to look in the mirror and get a response from as young as the ages of seven or eight like what am I going to do How do I handle this situation? And it was, Jay, you've got to survive. So that's just what I did. I survived. Um, I stayed with Rose. Probably, I want to say, till I was maybe about 10. 10, yeah, 10. And at this stage, my dad was back on the scene. I loved my dad. Like, there was nobody, 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 nobody in the world could tell me a bad word about my dad. There was, it just, just wasn't possible, to be honest with you. It just wasn't possible. He was, for me, like a golden unicorn. <laughs> like... He was, um, he for me was my wish maker. <coughs> now, all throughout care, there had been many times where my dad had tried to get in contact or had had one-off visits. He would drive down from London, he would come and see me, I'd go back to London. <coughs> he dropped me back. <clears throat> Sorry guys And I don't know On one occasion What happened Between him and my mother But he came to the house For a Visit I think he arrived at about 2 o'clock in the morning I remember sitting on his lap in the front room On a weekend visit at my mum's house in Southmead And then the next day we went out, we went shopping. Um, my dad spent loads of stuff, loads of money on stuff. Like, I think we went to the Disney store. Yeah, the Disney store. There used to be a Disney store in Bristol, in town, that was on a corner. I think it was just before you went into the galleries, if I remember correctly. I'm not sure, but I'm sure that there was. The Disney store there and upstairs in the galleries you could the food court was all different and everything in the galleries we're gonna have to explore all of that because like things have changed so so much um but yeah we went shopping and we had breakfast and we had lunch and my mum was there and my brother and sister was there and my stepdad was there and my dad wasn't cheap he bought everybody's stuff he didn't come down and just be like oh I'm only looking after my child no he got stuff for everyone and then he went back to london and i'm not quite sure what happened between my mum and my dad but all i know is the next thing is supposedly my mum's telling me that my dad has said that he will chop her up and post her around post her in envelopes around bristol and i was a bit like because by then, I was well aware of my mum's ability to, how do I say this, lie. <laughs> um, her ability to lie, her ability to manipulate situations so that they would be the better of her. And also, possibly, 
she may have been a bit jealous of the relationship that me and my dad had considering that he hadn't really been around but as far as I was concerned he was a unicorn he was special so I don't know what happened with that but that was the next story that I heard and from that I didn't hear from my dad for a couple of years and then he came back out of the blue out of nowhere I don't know quite why I think I had told my foster carer to get in touch with my dad um and he came to see me in Bristol at my foster carer's house and I kept his train ticket for ages and ages and ages and ages and ages and then I went up to London to go and visit him and the whole situation from there was the next process step in this whole situation was for me to move to London now because I was a full under a full care order my mum didn't have much to say about that um I guess things in social services were kind of starting to change and the whole plan was is that if a child can live with a parent or family member that knows that child then let's go for it because it's going to be a better place for that child to be so I moved to London I wanted to say somewhere around 98 maybe yeah somewhere around 98 I want to say I moved to London um before this, there had been regular contact with my dad. I was on the phone with him on a regular basis. He would come down and see me every two weeks. I would have phone calls with him, like, every three to four days or so. And the plan was for me to move to London to eventually end up with my dad. Um, but he had gone silent on me. So now, the second adult in my life had disappeared. He wasn't responding to any letters from social services. He wasn't responding to any phone calls. He wasn't answering the door. Um, he had basically just dipped out. And I didn't know, and I, to be honest with you, I didn't know, I didn't understand why, and it, to me, it didn't make any sense, but I was head strong in the fact that I wanted to go back to London. And I, and I was going to end up with my dad, no matter the situation. That's where I was going to end up, with my pops. That was the be and end all of the situation. So, um, when I first moved to London I remember being with foster carers called Seth and Araba they were African they were an African couple um we lived in Streatham Streatham Vale if I remember correctly I can't remember the name of the school I went to, but it was different. As far as social services were, con were confirmed, the foster carers were fine, they were happy, it was another black family, and they were starting to be all with this, oh, black children should be with black families, and you should be with your race so you can get the things that you need, and the right caring, and hair being looked after, and things like that. So I was there, and my brother was also there for a while. Um, I can't remember the school I went to. I cannot remember the school I went to. But I remember that it was hard. It wasn't necessarily easy. I think my brother got in a suitcase one day and decided that he didn't want to stay. And he was removed from that foster carers in the suitcase um, and brought back to Bristol. <laughs> it wasn't that bad he was just extreme <laughs> and that was his way of putting away putting 
putting across his fact that he wasn't happy and he didn't like it there. So I stayed in London um, and I moved from Stefan Araba after I think it was a bullying incident. I was bullied real bad in school. Um, probably because I had some ways about me that weren't normal, but I weren't a normal child. So, you know, um, there was a bullying situation that happened and I was moved from Sefan Araba to another foster carer called Anzi. And we lived uh, far. She lived out in Croydon. And I don't even think, like, I remember us going to school then. The trams weren't even built. Like, with the trams, they were building the lines for the trams. And I went to... I went to a school called Ashburton. I went to another school before that, but I ended up going to a school called Ashburton. Um, I was with Anzi for a while. And this is how crazy life is, okay? So I was fostered by a woman called Anzi who had previously worked with my nan, my mum's mum. And she was able to link me back to my family, which was weird as hell because... I didn't know of family. I didn't know of aunts and uncles and cousins. And I didn't know that my mum had anyone. Now, I knew she had a mum and dad, but I didn't know that she had anyone. Um, at this point, I didn't know of my brothers because my dad wasn't in my life. So, Anzi was able to get in contact with my grandmother who was able to come and see me and Anzi took me to see my nan and it was like wow when I saw my nan it was like looking at my mum I was like wow okay wow by these times she was no longer with my granddad um and then I think the best thing in the world happened my auntie came to see me and I remember living out in the middle of nowhere and my auntie coming to get rid. I'm sure. I think she was driving a back golf at the time. I'm not sure. I think it was. Um, and for me. Oh I'm going to start to get tearful now. For me that was pinnacle. Because it finally gave me. Um, it finally gave me people that were mine. Because before that, I didn't know anyone that was mine. Apart from my mum, my brother and sister, I didn't know anyone that was mine. That came from my bloodline. That gave me a link back to who I am, where I am and where I came from. And I don't know if people understood that. But being in care was lonely as hell. Even though you're in a, in a house with a family you're in someone else's family you feel like an imposter no matter how much you're there you you to a certain degree you feel like an imposter there will be certain things that happen in that family that whether you like it or not you're not a part of because they're not your family so when i found when my auntie came to see me for me that was like I don't even know how to describe that feeling of of love. Just of love. And I thought that eventually, I thought that from there, that um, things would get better. I really did. I really, I really thought that, do you know what? I'm in London, I'm with family now. Everything's going all right. I'm going to school Yes, I need therapy. I was going to art therapy at that point. Um, every week. 
I was having art therapy and I was also having speech therapy. Not not speech, not to learn how to speak, but just to understand and deal with certain situations. So I thought that things would get better from there. They kind of did and kind of didn't. So I moved from being with Anzi to being with somebody called Penny. Down in Thornton Heath. Um, my nan would come and see me there. Anzi would come and see me. My auntie would come and get me and take me out. Penny got married. I was a bridesmaid. Um, I went to Ashburton's. Things were trying to... Starting to kind of like, I want to say, settle down for me. They were kind of starting to... Yeah, to settle and to ease for me. And then after the wedding and I think I was in the middle of year eight. And then this review meeting happened. Which brought me back to Bristol. Um... And that kind of, that, that, that put a stop in everything. Because before I moved back to Bristol, I was really, like, life was really kind of starting to look up for me. I was doing gymnastics. I was doing tap. I was doing modern. I was doing ballet. I was doing jazz. I was playing the violin and the viola. I played the piano. I was in the school choir. Academically, I was doing things for myself and making the moves that I needed to make to set myself up for my future. But that's what I was thinking about then. It sounds mad, but at like 11, 12 and 13, that's what I was thinking about now. I was like, okay, so I need to start setting myself up for where I'm going to be in like 10 years time. But I'm going to leave that there. And we are going to pick up next week. Thank you guys for listening to this week's episode of Growing Up Ghetto. Um, I know that this may have been a very triggering conversation for some people. Um, It may have caused some people to think or feel certain ways. I want to make sure that you guys are accessing the correct support if needs be um, and that you're speaking about your feelings and how things make you feel because that's one of the best ways to alleviate any form of personal stress on yourself um do remember that you can get in contact with me via the instagram page which is growing up underscore ghetto If you want, you can contact me there or I can signpost you to where you can get the correct information if needs be. Don't forget to share, subscribe, follow, all of that and the above. And I'll see you guys on the next one. Remember, the sky's the limit.